Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel South London. You can visit us at calvarychapelsouthlondon.org. What is the gospel? Many of us have heard this term, like I said, we've heard it all over the place. In secular in terms, it's always used, you know, gospel music charts. Um, it's, it's, I was even, a guy at work was even asking me, what does it mean, gospel? Is it something, doesn't it mean something that's true? I'm like, well, yeah, but it's a bit more specific than that. We all need to keep it at the forefront. The gospel has two sides. The first being salvific. The first being salvation of the lost. Salvation of those who are in need of salvation. And the second side of it is, having that salvation been provided for, now the glory of God. The gospel speaks of the glory of God. It speaks of the majesty and the awesome splendor of the King of Kings. So we see there's two sides of that. And I want you to keep that in mind. We'll touch on both as we go through. We're going to look at salvation first. Because it's where it all begins. Without salvation, we have nothing. It's all-inclusive. And you cannot exhaust this topic. It never becomes irrelevant. It never becomes outdated. Whether you're a young child who's heard the gospel for the first time. Whether you're 70 years old and you've heard it all your life. And you've lived it since you were a young child. This remains relevant and important and essential. And I'm not saying this to you because I am there. I'm saying this to you because I'm convicted that I forget it so often. And I'm challenged today to just be reminded and to be refreshed on what's important about the gospel. Why do we need the gospel? Why do we need it? It says in in Romans, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how then will they call on the name of him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless someone is sent? I spent some time with a good friend of mine. Um, We grew up together in southwest London. I haven't seen him for about 13 years. And he has always been on my heart. I always pray for this guy. He's dear to my heart. He doesn't know the Lord. And... um, I spent some time with him the other day for the first time in years and we got to talk about God and we got to talk about the gospel. And he's like, well, I have an opinion about who's up there. He calls it a power, whoever he, she, it might be. I don't need him, it, or she right now. I'm okay, but if he wants to reveal himself to me in power, then maybe he will when he's ready. And he used this word, I'm a humble guy. I'm okay, I'll, I'll, I'll manage, I'll do. And my heart was just busted inside because this guy, whilst his world, literally, I won't go into detail, but his world was falling down around him in an immediate sense and more importantly in an eternal sense. He's there with such a cocky assurance of his own stature and his own position. And the thought came to mind of, if a man doesn't need, think he needs salvation, he's not going to want salvation. If a man... Isn't, doesn't need saving, he's not going to want saving. He's not going to want 
to be rescued. What do I need rescuing for? I'm okay. I'm fine. Don't worry about me. I'm good. There was some who would even say, why burden a man with guilt? Why stress him out? He, look, he, he's blissfully unaware. Leave him be, man. Don't stress him out with guilt. How dare you? That's like saying to the man who hasn't been diagnosed with cancer, leave him be. He's happy. He's okay. I had cancer a while back. And this is not going to be about me, but just about the fact of I didn't know I had it. Before I was diagnosed, I was a lot thinner than I am now. I was healthy. I was working hard. Um, nothing was hindering me from doing what I wanted to do. And then I received a diagnosis. You have stage 2 Hodgkin's lymphoma. If you don't get it sorted, sorted out or seen to now, you're going to die within the next year. Hold on. No, no, no. Don't stress him out. Leave him be. He's fine. He's, he's, he, don't burden him with the, with the knowledge of his sin. Don't do it. Don't stress him out with the knowledge of the cancer that's eating his... I had a, a, a malignant ball of cells that started in my neck and was working its way down through the lymphatic system and would have eventually taken over my entire body. This is a picture of sin. Sin is the same thing. And my desire was to make Kingsley, my friend, aware of this fact. Bruv, you're sin sick. The diagnosis is, is strong. But there were those who would say, don't, don't, don't do that. And I don't mean to be rude, but we need to sometimes get off of that moral high, so-called moral high ground. Because it's not his immediate comfort that I'm concerned about. It's his eternal destiny. It's his eternal position. And my heart's still broken. I pray for him all the time. And if you would pray with me for my, for my brother, he's a good friend. And I love him dearly. I would be letting a dying man, dying man remain in his condition for the sake of his feelings. So if you don't know the Lord today, your feelings might get hurt. And for that, I do not apologize. Because your eternal position is more important than your comfort. And even as Christians, it's the same. I wish there was somebody there to rebuke me more often. And to say, hey Tim, man, get focused. Because my eternal situation is more important right now than my immediate comfort. So what is this diagnosis? What is this? Well, this is the problem. Romans 3.23, for we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The problem is severe. You and I are guilty of crimes worthy of punishment. John 3.17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. Because check it, who, whoever does not believe is condemned already. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. Sin. What's all this sin talk? We hear it thrown around a lot. It's church talk. Sin, what does it mean? It's, all I'm hearing is some religious guy talk about my sin. Eh. It has no meaning to so many people. It's just church talk. Some angry preacher belting out words like sin and repentance, both of which we're going to discuss today. Sin's an old English term 
for missing the mark. You'd have an, an archer who would aim at the target and he would miss. I, I don't like that term because it's assuming that I'm even aiming at the right target. I know that when I'm walking in sin, I'm not even looking in the right direction. I'm aiming off way over here doing my own thing. So maybe sin isn't necessarily an accurate description of our position. Sorry, bear with me. It's not a case of, oops, sorry, Lord. I just happened to go off target for a moment. People don't like that kind of talk. People don't like the kind of thing of, well, I'm bad, but I'm not that bad. I'm sinful, but I'm not that sinful. I'm not like so-and-so over there or so-and-so over here. Yes, I've made mistakes. No, Lord Jesus, I have blatantly disobeyed you willfully. I have. We have knowingly committed crimes. We have broken the law of God and stand guilty. I don't have to go into detail. Your conscience bears witness. You know what you've done and when you've done it and how you did it. And if your conscience doesn't bear witness, it used to until you hardened your heart. Until you committed the same thing over and over again until you were numb to the voice of the conscience that God gave you. Guilt exists because we're guilty. I'm not laying guilt on you. A man feels guilt because he has committed something to be worthy of that guilt. Please don't see me standing here as some self-righteous man telling you about your sin. I'm, I'm on this level with you. We stand in the same place. I include myself in this. I have been and I am and I will be at some point guilty of, of, of disobeying God's law. Dis- guilty of disobeying the Lord I love. And at one point didn't love. Wasn't interested in. We stand together in the fact, and this sounds harsh, but it, the more I grow in the Lord, the more I see actually how true this is. We all have a dark, wicked, deceitful heart that is capable of doing great evil. I am capable of doing great evil. You are capable of doing great evil. Even if it seems not so bad, maybe it's glossed over with a shiny sheen of self-respectability and pseudo-morality. I I, I gloss it over. It's not so bad. I know when I look deep down in the darkest of times that I've had, that, nah, man, (laughs) dark. And again, like I said, this sounds harsh, but this is the the reality. The diagnosis is guilty. Nah, man, be positive. Be uplifting. I want to feel good when I come out of church. We will. But we have to deal with the first things that are first. We are removed from God. We are separate from him. Apart from his gospel. Apart from his truth. Apart from his sacrifice. Okay, so if I'm sick, if I have this disease, if I have this problem, if, if I have this cancer, what is the remedy? What is the solution? Recognizing the fact is only the beginning. If I left you here and walked out, that would be a wretched thing to do. It would be horrible. It would be awful. For us who know the Lord, it's like, well, thanks, Tim. Cheers, bro. Point out what I already knew. For those who don't know the Lord, it's like, man, what a jerk. But there is hope. And I want to major on the hope more than the issue. We must seek out the great physician. Isaiah Isaiah says that he is the one by whose stripes we are healed. Often it's used to talk about Physical healing. Tell you what, it more so 
to a great degree, speaks about spiritual healing. Speaks about healing that, that problem of that sin sickness, that issue that we cannot help ourselves with. By his stripes, we are healed. Again, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. People tend to have an image of God as this guy afar off. And there's a bunch of devotees and a bunch of religious people whipping themselves and getting in some religious fervor, crying out for God's help. Hear us, Lord. Why can't you hear us? Like we're seeking so earnestly after God. I think it's the other way around. We're off with our backs turned to God. And it was God who initiated from the very beginning. God was the one reaching out his hand saying, I've provided for your problem. And you're not even interested. Please come. He isn't this far off God who needs appeasing and satisfying by our desperate, earnest deeds of religious fervor. He's a kind, loving, gracious God who cries out in the garden, Adam, where are you? It is he who slew the animals for Adam and Eve in the garden. When they, when they disobeyed him, he provided a covering for their nakedness. Through death, he provided a covering with blood, brought skins and said, cover up your nakedness and your shame. He even declared in a very small, almost subtle sense, the plan of salvation. Check out what God says to Satan about the seed of Eve that would crush the seed of of Satan. It speaks of something yet to come. Very subtle, very quiet, still small declaration of God's provision. It was God who called out to Noah and gave him his plan for salvation through the ark and a covering from the judgment of the flood. It was God who called Abraham and gave him promises that through his lineage, that through his line, would come the seed and the Messiah. It was God who met with Jacob, the usurper. It was God who met with him when he was running away from the crimes he'd committed in Bethel when he had a dream of the ladder with the angels ascending and descending from from the heaven to the earth. That letter speaks of Christ. That, that, that letter, that dream speaks of Christ. The dream speaks of Christ as the access to the heavens. And through Christ comes the word of God. And later on when he was coming back from Laban after 14 years working for, for Rachel and Leah, God met him again and gave him a new name. This is a whistle stop through Bible history. But it's just to prove a point. God is the one that has reached down. And I know I was off somewhere else saying, sorry, I'm I'm, I'm not interested right now. Moses was tending his sheep near Mount Horeb. Again, after having ran away because he murdered a man. He slew an Egyptian and buried him in the sand. Then when it was found out, he ran away. And God called him from out of the burning bush, Moses, 
Come near, take off your shoes, you're standing on holy ground. I've heard the cries of my people and I'm going to send you as a deliverer. I will send you as a deliverer. He gave them the pass. He gave them the Passover lamb, the symbol of salvation to come. We'll go into that a bit further. The blood that covers, so the angel of death would pass over and not touch those covered, those covered under the house within. We could go on for a minute. There are many examples throughout Scripture. There are many examples of people's testimonies where we were not looking for God, and yet He reached down and said. I have something for you. I have the answer to your problem. Friday night, we have the guys going out with evangelism, declaring the truth. Guys, you have a problem and come and receive the remedy. And I tell you, it's one of the best experiences we've ever had to see just people coming and hearing the word and receiving it. I believe a guy got saved last week. Just phenomenal. The Great Commission, go into all the earth, preaching the good news, preaching the gospel. He sent us out into the world the same way that he reached down. We are now his hands and his feet. All of this points to Jesus. All of it points to Jesus. Anytime you see a picture of covering. So the ark was a covering. The blood on the doorposts for the Passover lamb was a covering. An atonement. It all points to Jesus. The remedy. The redeemer. Knowing we are guilty. We touched on that. Knowing there is a problem. There is a sin sickness. We now have the remedy. A far off God with ears closed. More like a God who is near. Reaching out. To a hard hearted disinterested people. Perishing and in need of a saviour. So back to basics of the cross. We had, com- we had communion today and Brother Andrew went over the, 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 the truth of, of the, the cross of Jesus Christ. And I love that he pointed out the thief on the cross next to him. How more wretched can you get? You are being executed for the crimes that you committed and you own up to the fact you're there. There's, there's, no, there's no getting off that cross unless somebody takes you down from it. And then he cries out to Jesus, remember me. What mercy. And he was guilty. This is the thing. Was thinking, well, okay, now that he's crying out for mercy, he's a, he's a better person now. No. I just understand the issue and I'm doing the right thing about it. In the kingdom of Egypt, under Pharaoh, Ramses II, I believe, around 1500 BC, God was pouring out his judgment on a nation, and rightly so. He caused an angel to pass from house to house and would slay every firstborn under the roof of each home. He told Moses to take a lamb, take a, a spotless newborn lamb, Bring it into the home to live with you for three days. So imagine you've got this cute lamb dwelling in your home, playing with the kids for three days. And at the end of the three days, he said, okay, now slay that lamb. Take its blood and put it on the doorpost of your house. So when this angel passes over, and trust me, it will pass over, 
Instead of coming into the home and slaying your firstborn, it will see the blood and pass over. And again, people would say, Tim, you're talking about a lot of dark things. You're talking about a lot of serious things. You're talking about slaying lambs, slaying firstborn, firstborn children. I think this points out then the seriousness of the problem if the remedy is so serious. If the judgment is so serious. I love the example of, um, that's given through the truthology um, workshops they do in schools. To give us a perspective of the seriousness of sin. I want to touch on it briefly. If you're in a playground and you get in a little fight with one of the kids in school, let's say when you're a child, and you, you smack your friend... Uh, you'll probably get a detention or maybe your parents will get called in. Then if you then go on from there, and you're a bit older now, and you're, you're in college and you, you actually get angry with your teacher and you hit your teacher, you'll probably get expelled, excluded, kicked out of school. Then later on, if you, you're on the street and a policeman's stopping you for something and you then hit the policeman, you'll get arrested and sent down for assault. But then what happens if Excuse the analogy, it's a bit brutal. It's Prince William. And you decide, you see him and you just, you hit Prince William. You're not getting up from that. <laughs> now, what happens then if I spit in the face of God? Who is so much higher than this gentleman. Just to give you a perspective, just to give you an understanding of, man, that's an offense. The remedy is serious because the crime is serious. The judgment of God hangs over all of us and rightly so. But the lamb has been provided. John 1.29 The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That lamb was brought into our home for three years. And then over the feast of Passover, the same Passover that was initiated with Moses and this other lamb, he was inspected for three days leading up to the cross. Taken before the high priest and inspected and, and then he was slain. And the blood was shed. Let's read that. Turn to John 19. I'm going to read from verse 38 of verse 18, uh, chapter 18. After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. So Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and a purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and officers saw him, 
they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to the law, he ought to die because he made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus answered him, gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you, know that I, do you not know that I have the authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him and said, You would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he delivered me over to you. Sorry, he who delivered me over to you has the greatest sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So Pilate heard these words. He brought Jesus out and sat down at the judgment seat, a place called the stone pavement, and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. Away with him, away with him. Crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered them over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which is in Aramaic called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with two others, one on either side and Jesus in between them. Pilate, who wrote an inscription, put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests and the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier and also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And he said to his disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished to fulfill scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and raised it to his mouth. When he had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. He bowed his head and gave up his ghost. It was a long long passage of scripture, but I probably could have picked a better one that was maybe a bit more concise. But just, there's four parts in the scripture that gave us that, that give us that description. There's four gospels that give us this description of the lamb that was slain, of the blood that was shed. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ for the sins of the universe For God in this manner loved the world that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. 
Now, here's the deal. Anybody can say a whole manner of things. Anybody can claim, don't you know I'm the son of God? Don't you know I have the power to take away your sin? Don't you know that I can, I can heal you of your wounds? Didn't you know? But Jesus backed it up with truth. Jesus claimed to be the Messiah. He claimed to be the great I am. Sent down to save man and went on the cross. And three days later rose again. His claims were substantiated. So much so that Paul writes in Corinthians, the resurrection is key. Again, Andrew mentioned it earlier. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. The problem is, if Jesus had stayed dead, it was just all talk. There's no remedy there. You just pointed out the problem. You described some guy's bold statements and claims and and a death that was exceptionally gruesome. Cool. Great. What time's lunch? But it wasn't the fact. Christ rose from the dead to show that he has power over death. To show that he is who he said he is. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1 to 10. Now I would remind you, brothers, of this gospel. The gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I've preached to you, unless you've believed in vain. Here's the gospel that he describes. For I delivered to you, as of the first importance, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins, in accordance to the scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised, and on the third day, in accordance to the scriptures, he was raised. And that he appeared to Cephas, which is Peter, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, even though some have fallen asleep, as in passed away. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. This is Paul. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of the apostles. The church of God, sorry. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and by his grace toward me was not in vain. It later goes on to say in that same chapter, in Adam, our original state, all die. But also in Christ shall all be made alive. What is our response? Okay, we've heard this. We've heard this solemn declaration of our condition, the solemn remedy, the greatness of the resurrection. But what's our response? How should we respond? And I speak to two groups of people in this room. I don't know your hearts individually. Some of you I do know personally. For the unsaved. Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now is an opportunity for you to repent. Now is an opportunity for you to turn away from your sin. Again, it's that church talk. Sin and repentance. What does it mean? Here I am loving what I do. 
Loving my sin. Loving getting lagered up on the weekend. Loving sleeping around. Loving getting as much money by whatever means I can. Even if it means treading on other people. Taking somebody else's things. And so on. It means saying, actually, you know what? This is wrong. Turning your back on it and saying, Lord, have mercy. Forsaking one thing and embracing another. Believe on the good news, the gospel. The term is a Greek term, evangelion. Evangelion Sounds like angel if you take one half, which is message. It's the good message. This is good news. Acknowledge your sin. Forsake it. Turn away from it and turn toward Christ. Here he is reaching down, like I said, throughout history, reaching down. Accept what he has for you. Accept this good news. There was a, something that the, the Hebrews had to do with the, with the Passover lamb. They had to take the blood and apply it to the doorposts. They had to take the blood of the lamb and actually apply it. We have to take the blood of the lamb, the definite article, the king of kings, and we have to apply it to our hearts. We have to apply it to our lives. We have to say, Lord, I recognize the sacrifice you made for my sin. I recognize what you did on my behalf. It should have been me on that cross. We sing a a, a song on how deep the Father's love. It was my sin that held him there. And then you take that blood and you apply it to your life. Lord Jesus, I believe you. I trust you. Save me. Redeem me. I'm lost. Repent and believe in the gospel. If this is speaking to you, if, if, if the word of God is, is speaking to you right now, wherever you're at, seek his forgiveness. Maybe afterwards you can speak to one of the pastors or one of the elders or the person who brought you here and ask them to explain it a bit further. Get them to tell you about how Christ has forgiven them. For us who believe. Imagine if da Vinci never painted a painting in his life. But he had the talent. Leonardo da Vinci, the great painter, but it's never been appreciated. We can appreciate the gifts and the talents that Leonardo da Vinci has because we have the Sistine Chapel, because we have the the statue of David. He's a phenomenal artist. He's He's just, he has a great mind. All his designs, all his technical drawings, even invented the first helicopter back before we even had the combustion engine or anything like that. And we can look at his work and say, wow, that's something. God was always gracious. Even before the cross, he was always loving. And now his masterpiece is on display and we can say, my gosh, how amazing is this God we serve. How splendid is the Savior that saved me. And I think recently I've kind of drifted off of this fact of the God we serve is phenomenal. The God we serve is astounding. 
because I haven't been reading his word. I haven't been soaking up his truth, being refreshed in my mind about who God is and what he's done. God has painted and indeed is still painting his masterpiece and we're part of it. We can see the grace of God in our lives, in each other's lives and say, wow, what a beautiful God we serve. What a splendid saviour. Let's adore him. Here's the truth. God is the gospel. Because it is from his judgment we needed to be saved. Because we sinned against him first and foremost. He saved us by himself. He himself is our saviour. He is the one that died on the cross. And now it is him we get to enjoy and appreciate. And just walk in a loving relationship with God himself. So what is the gospel? I would say it's salvation from him, by him, and for him. And it's, it's deep. It's huge. It's like, what does that even mean? But I tell you what, once the, the salvation part is only the beginning. Because from then on, we, sit, we sung about it this morning. Indescribable. The the majesty of God. I love singing that song. Your grace has found me just as I am. Empty handed but alive in your hand. Majesty. So not only are we no longer being judged by him. We are in a full loving relationship with him. Not, sorry Lord. But run into him like a child runs to his father. Dad. and, And clinging on. And I'm thankful that he actually holds on to me more than I hold on to him. So just with that in mind, it's it's just a short reminder. Let's honor him. Let's worship him. If you don't, let's start. If you do know him, let's continue. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I'm so thankful... For these truths, Lord. I'm so thankful that you have told me about the problem. And yet you have given us a remedy. And that you yourself are that remedy. Lord, I come to you and I ask that you would cleanse me of my unrighteousness. I ask that you would make me clean. And that I would go into a deeper relationship with you. Help me to love you more, Lord. Not to earn your favor, but just to say thank you. Thank you. Lord, thank you for the cross. Thank you for the resurrection. Thank you for your son. We worship you. We honor you. In Jesus' name.